Welcome to Seismic Sales Enablement Shift Podcast. Here is your host and Seismic's Vice President of Marketing, Daniel Rodriguez. Hello and welcome to the Sales Enablement Shift Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Rodriguez. And I'm your co-host, Alyssa Drury. I think one of the major reasons sales enablement fails is misalignment among departments, and particularly when it isn't clear which department is actually in control or, or has the ultimate responsibility for sales enablement. That's right. So today we're going to talk about the importance of marketing's involvement in sales enablement. And there's no one better to join us for this conversation than Matt Hines. Matt is the president and founder of Hines Marketing, and he has over 15 years of experience in marketing, business development, and sales consulting work. His aim is to help his clients consistently deliver measurable results in sales, product, and customer loyalty. So let's hear what Matt has to say about how important it is for marketing to be involved in sales enablement and what it takes to do so. Well, I think maybe we should start off with having you give a brief introduction to yourself um, and background. My name is Matt Hines. Uh, I founded Hines Marketing about eight years ago. I've um, been doing B2B sales and marketing work for close to 20 years now. And um, we think of ourselves as sales pipeline people. You know, we're a bunch of B2B marketers that think like salespeople, that think in terms of sort of the end game, which is closed business. So we're managing, helping people manage demand gen, lead management, sales enablement programs, you know, all over the all over the world now. But yeah, it's just a ton of fun. Uh, you know, live in, live in Seattle, outside of Seattle in an old farmhouse with my wife, kids, and uh, dog and chickens. Dog and chickens, wow. nice. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit more about the type of companies that you, that you tend to work with. It's pretty diverse. You know, a lot of our business is sort of inbound word of mouth referrals. You know, we do a lot of tech companies, as you would expect. But I would say our other two biggest industries tend to be healthcare and manufacturing. We've been doing a lot more non-tech companies, uh, which has actually been a lot of fun. And honestly, no matter who you're selling to or what you're selling, and when it comes to B2B, I mean, you know, the uh, as you guys know, the process is the same. Like, who's your target audience? What do they care about? What are the outcomes that they care about? What's the internal buying organization look like that you need to build consensus around? And how do you leverage those insights tied into whatever your measurable sales objectives are to go move the needle and get some deals done. Uh, and that works in a, in a high-tech startup SaaS company, as well as an old-school chemical reseller. Uh, so, you know, depending on the uh, the audience, the approach and the, and, the, and the methodology is often very similar. I realize now why, even just having this brief conversation with you, why I've enjoyed your tweets and reading <laughs> your posts so much over the past few years, because I've also been trying very hard to make sure that uh, marketing is heavily aligned with sales and speaking the language of revenue. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so it's good to hear you mention that, <laughs> mention that right yeah. off the bat. This topic of sales enablement, it seems like it's one that's been picking up a ton of steam only in the past few years. Do you agree with that? Kind of where do you see, how have you seen sales enablement evolve, you know, in, in your 20 years of experience? Yeah, I mean, I, I think sales enablement really didn't exist as a function until recently. And I feel safe saying that because I, I feel like sales enablement as it is optimally designed today is a strategic, proactive effort to improve the efficiency of the sales organization as well as increase their close rates of opportunities to deals. Now, traditionally, that type of role has existed, but we've called it sales operations. We've called it sales administration. And I, and historically, that has been a tactical, administrative, reactive role, right? It's, it, is, it is a support team that still exists in organizations, right? And is still valuable in organizations, but is really traditionally been more of a support team that just does 
the dirty work that the sales team doesn't want to do or doesn't feel like they want to do. I look at sales enablement as far more strategic and far more scalably important than that in that you've got you know an opportunity to manage content, tools, process, technology with a specific aim at increasing the active selling time of your reps, increasing their efficiency and effectiveness in what they're doing every day, every week, as well as giving them those same tools, uh, tactics, processes, and and content to increase conversion of the opportunities they have. So I could argue that sales enablement is one of the most important, most highly leveraged roles on the sales floor, given the impact that that one person or that one group can have across the entire sales team. So if, if you're going into a company, you're oftentimes, my guess is, are, are you being brought in by the, the, the marketing side of the organization, but then they're they're saying we've got sales problems that we're reacting to and and then is helping to establish that sales enablement function and a charter for it, sometimes part of the work that you do? Yes. Every B2B marketing organization has a sales problem. And I don't mean problem isn't probably the right word, but if you are, if you're in B2B marketing today and you're not thinking every day about sales, if you're not thinking about where the pipeline is, if you're not thinking about how close your team is to hitting their number, then you're not nearly as integrated in strategy, let alone tactics and action as you should be. I mean, let's, let's be honest, you know, a lot of marketing organizations, you look at their dashboard and it's set up with a bunch of activities. Oh, here's our web traffic and here's our conversion on, on here's our open rates on emails and here's here's how many retweets we had last month. And that's all fine and good, but those are activity metrics. Yeah, I think marketers need to be focused far more on business metrics and revenue generating metrics. You cannot buy a beer with an MQL. So as important <laughs> as MQLs are, you know, it's just, it's not enough. This is one of the reasons why I know I may be fast forwarding and I don't mean to uh, sort of uh, steal your thunder on future questions. I believe firmly that marketing should proactively take control and embrace sales enablement as part of their own function. I think the closer marketing can get to really working on the full funnel to impacting conversion and activity and volume all the way through to the end of the pipeline, the more valuable marketing becomes to the organization, the more it starts to be seen as a profit center as opposed to the traditional cost center that it's been seen in the past. This is so fantastic. I'm so excited about this because, so I've been here in this role at Seismic for three years, Mm -hmm. educated in the HubSpot inbound marketing, content marketing world, and used MQLs as my currency of choice, communicated that to the rest of the senior leadership team, to the board, and kind of wondered half- half the time, like why they didn't seem as excited as I did about just such <laughs> such crazy growth of MQLs yeah. and realized, and so I'm actually doing, I'm going to be speaking at the Zoom Info Summit event in a few weeks in the middle of September. And I'm broaching this topic because recently we have abandoned talking about MQLs when we are, we're still, we're still tracking them, but we've abandoned using that as the currency that we that we use to communicate internally um, yeah. and to the board, and we're now using a sales metric, which is the enterprise accepted opportunities with an inside sales team and outside sales team. And so, I mean, this has been like a major shift that has helped us align better to our own sales organization. And the analogy that, that we're using, so you, you talk about how you know you can't buy a beer. So the analogy that I'm going to be using in in this talk is. I don't know if you've seen this episode of Seinfeld where Kramer tries to buy a calzone in pennies <laughs> and gets thrown out basically of this uh, Italian eatery. And um, that's what I feel. It's like marketers are going around trying to buy things in pennies and you really 
need to be using dollars. So that's one of my two big tweetable takeaways um, <laughs> is that you can't buy a calzone with pennies. I don't want to go so far as to say that MQLs aren't important. They are. I don't want to say that, you know, that retweets and web traffic and open rates on your emails aren't important. They are. But you do have to differentiate your operational dashboard from your executive dashboard, right? I mean, as a marketing team, you need to look very closely at all of the tactical performance metrics of your campaigns to make sure you are making everything work as optimally as it can. What I don't want you to do is go into your CEO's office and show them a dashboard with open and click rates, right? They do not care. And I think you mentioned it earlier, they also don't really care about MQLs. So your ability to start to define your objectives on sales terms I mean, let alone the fact that most marketers have an MQL goal and a lead goal that really has nothing to do with the sales goal, right? They weren't built together, and so they don't really tie together. And so marketing may hit their number, and sales may be say, that's great, but that wasn't nearly as many as we needed. Right. Or those leads sucked, and we never, def- we never agreed on the definition of them in the first place. Right. I mean, I was at a conference last week, and I was pleasantly surprised, uh, and I put an emphasis on surprised, at how many B2B marketers in the room, when I asked them, when is their number one goal? They weren't, far more than I expected, weren't saying leads. They were saying marketing is expected to contribute 70% of the pipeline next quarter, right? And so as much as I would like for ultimately the measure to be marketing influence on sale, so you get something all the way to the bottom line, if you as a marketer are now focused, your number one goal is not MQLs, it's SQLs. If your number one goal is now pipeline contribution, boy, you are moving in the right direction. And that is going to change the way everyone on your marketing team hopefully thinks as well, how they prioritize campaigns. You're no longer concerned just about lead volume. You're no longer concerned about having that slide you love showing the board to be up and to the right every month of new leads. More leads may be the exact opposite of what you need to do. So, you know, put your cheese in the right place and focus on the right outcomes. Not only does that show that you're aligned with the rest of the organization, it will help drive the daily activity decision-making of people throughout your marketing organization in the right direction. Preach, Matt. I love it. Woo! I love it. We move, So, okay, so I moved the cheese, but I moved it to the right place, basically. Yeah. This is what I'm getting to. Okay, so back to marketing's role in sales enablement, you know, back to what you'd previously said. I've actually spoken with people that come out on different sides of this, and I don't know if I personally have a strong opinion about this. So tell me why you feel, do you have a strong opinion about where this role should reside within the organization and, and, and kind of how it should be structured? So at the end of the day, I don't really care. I, I, want the, I just want the role to be filled and to be actively managed. I am of the mind that sales should be focused as much as possible on selling. You know, we could spend a whole nother web, you know, whole nother podcast talking about, you know, whether or not, you know, sales should be creating their own content. I believe very strongly that sales should not be creating their own content. If you have a sales enablement group that is inside the sales organization, I think that's fine, but they have to work just as closely with marketing as they do with sales, just like a a marketing-driven sales enablement group is doing the same thing. I, one of the reasons why I think it's a good place, marketing is a good place for sales enablement is because of how important the content is and the storyline is. I think there has to be strong continuity of the stories you're telling from the beginning of the buying journey all the way to the end. And so content for sales enablement isn't just product sheets. It's not just, you know, pre, you know PowerPoint, you know, demo presentations. Ideally, it takes each of the personas you're targeting and looks at each of the stages of the buying journey and puts the right content in the right place at the right time. And marketing is usually best at creating that content based on those customer needs. And marketing is in the best position to develop that content based not only on a deeper understanding of personas, but based on continuing the momentum and velocity that was started 
by that prospect's engagement with marketing content, whether it was your blog post or your webinars or whatever they downloaded. If you can maintain continuity of that story and continue to reinforce the why for your prospects, you're far more likely to keep their attention. You're far more likely to keep them engaged and qualified. You're far more likely to convert them. So I, there's, those are a couple of from a variety of reasons of why I think it, it sits well in marketing. But I think maybe the trump card for me on that, boy, no pun intended, is that I, I think this is an opportunity for marketing to demonstrably embrace a greater part of revenue responsibility. It shows the organization that marketing is no longer just interested in traditional you know, marketing activity metrics, that they are going to put their money where their mouth is and embrace a far more integrated role with the sales organization to impact revenue results. How can they make sure that's integrated? If I play the devil's advocate there, I'd say, well, wouldn't this be potentially perceived, if not done perfectly, by sales as too heavy-handed, paternalistic, too much control? So, so where, how do you then strike the right balance there? How does marketing make sure if that role is a marketing function, that, that it's listening well enough and embedded well enough into the, into the fabric of, of knowing how to sell? That's a great question. If you don't have a strong relationship with your sales organization already, you can't just walk into the room and say, okay, here's all the things we're going to start doing for you, right? Because, I mean, they're not going to listen. They're not going to know why they need it. I mean, you you really do almost have to start, you know, go back to the drawing board and say, okay, what are the metrics we're trying to achieve together? What are the numbers that we need to hit together so that we actually all make our numbers so we all get to keep our jobs? If you're going foundationally to building a better relationship between sales and marketing, you start with the numbers, you have one spreadsheet that says, here's the deal, here's the number we need to hit, here's the pipeline we need to get there, here's the leads we need to get to that pipeline. That's one set of spreadsheet with one set of assumptions around conversion rates and volume. Then you define together what is a good lead, what is a good opportunity. I mean, you have to have definitions of each at each stage, what it means to be at that stage, what it means to graduate from that stage. What are sales and marketing's responsibilities at each of those stages? And then once you have that as a foundation, then you could say, okay, like there's a bunch of work that now needs to get done. I've had some sales VPs say, you know what? I consider it sales job to do the prospecting. Any leads marketing send to me is gravy, but I consider it the sales job to do that. And they're not saying that because they think marketing can't do it. They're saying that, hey, listen, my people own the number. We need to do this. So there's going to be a lot of different ideas of who owns what part of the process. But if everyone comes to the table and has the same end goal, the same objectives, the same definitions, like the same motives and and this does require culturally then as well i mean you have to you have to have a team that's willing to be collaborative um, not only at the beginning but also once you go to battle and things start working or not working you know you have to maintain that level of collaboration so look this is a lot easier said than done uh, and probably a longer answer than you wanted but uh, you know i think that you know you have to have that foundational level of respect of collaboration and agreement on the end goal and generally how you get there almost before you start divvying up those tasks. I don't know if you've helped contribute to a job search or helping to write a job rec for this type of role, but what what have you seen as as a successful background set of skills for someone to, to have this role? I mean, should this person have some sales, some type of experience on the sales side of the house? Or should, you know, should this be someone that's coming from outside of outside of that industry? Is it just a marketing specific background? Like what's what's best? It's interesting you say that because I actually think former sales professionals, former sales managers make fantastic sales enablement leaders. Yeah, that's kind of what I was uh, thinking when you were saying this. You, know, you kind yeah, of need they do. to know. Because that's the only way you can get any credibility. 
going yeah, into if, that room talking to other sales managers and senior salespeople. If you assign a former sales admin to this role, it's probably going to end up being a, back to being a little too tactical, a little too reactive. Uh, a lot of companies will put the sales admin role on a product manager. And, you know, look, product managers are all about the product. You know, many of them don't have a deep understanding, not only about the people and problems they're selling into, but also the sales process and how that integrates together. So I, I you know, I, I think a former sales professional, former sales manager is a great person to go into this role. You know, look, I mean, it's just like anything. I mean, I've seen plenty of people that have no sales experience and, you know, they have good perspectives and they they go and they kill their number on a consistent basis. So, you know, I, what's important to me is that you've got someone who is revenue focused and buyer centric, right? Someone that is going to know that the end goal is the bottom of the funnel, not the middle. And someone who knows that all the process, all the the tools, all the content is not about the company. It's not about the sales process. It's about the buying journey. It's about the individuals on the other side of the phone, on the other side of the desk when you're meeting with them. It's the prospects and their issues and their needs. And the more you align behind that from a content, from a tool, from a process standpoint, the more you're going to build that momentum and velocity, the more likely you're going to keep their attention. It's easy to lose track of that. I mean, it's, you know, most companies still, you know, even if they start this in the right direction, they too quickly revert back to product messages. And if you do that too early in the process, you will lose prospects. You know, you'll you'll sound like just every other salesperson that is just trying to pitch the product and isn't giving the prospect enough time, you know, and enough room to really understand not only the problem that they did or didn't know that they have, but also commit to change relative to an outcome for themselves before they show any interest in your product overall. So I think getting a little bit into sort of buyer journey and content here, but I think that kind of perspective that can be taught, that can be reinforced. Sometimes people that don't have you know experience in traditional sales and marketing orgs can better serve those roles because they're not bringing baggage with them. We probably have to bring you on and talk more about the buyer journey content stuff because I've this is also, I don't know, maybe maybe all of the things that I'm thinking have really just been shaped by you originally. And then I've and then I've just they've seeped that, you know, into the the fabric of all the things that I read and educate myself on. I, I, I feel passionately about creating a, a content effort that is first and foremost aligned to that buyer journey. Now, actually uncovering what that buyer journey is, is not a pie in the sky exercise. And no. I'd love to be able to pick your brain about that. Maybe we'll, we'll keep that topic for for a separate post. Um, But wanted to talk about, you know, when you actually go in, does the sales enablement function exist yet in in most of these situations? And and if it doesn't, how do you empower an organization, convince an organization that that they need it? And then how do they go about getting the the budget, the senior buy-in for it to exist? Yeah, I'm real quickly here trying to pull up a research project we did uh, earlier this year with a sales enablement company. And it was, you know, what we tried to do is we said, okay, it's interesting to say that people should do sales enablement, but it's more interesting to say, like, can we actually define why that's important? And what we found is that of sales enablement and sales and marketing professionals that had a funnel responsibility, those that had committed to to doing sales enablement work saw a direct increase in their conversion rates. I mean, 23% of the companies that we polled that were actively engaged in sales enablement efforts saw a conversion rate increase of 20% or more, 11% increased their conversion rates by greater than 30%. We explicitly segmented out those companies that said, we are focused on sales enablement as an organization. It was a very direct, I mean, it was a surprisingly direct correlation between sales enablement and conversion rate increases of opportunity to close deals. I look at something like that and I say, okay, like that helps me say I should do this. 
But then I also look at that and say like, okay, where do I fund that? Well, fund that out of what you would have spent those dollars on leads because now all of a sudden you can spend less money on outside campaigns that may or may not work. If you invested those same dollars on a person or two internally that simply focused on doing the sales enablement work we've talked about so far, what would a, forget 20, 30%, what would a 10% increase in conversion rate mean for your organization, mean for your existing sales team? Don't hire new salespeople, just get them to convert more. So that's why I say the sales enablement role is highly leveraged. If you've got 50 salespeople, if you've got 500 salespeople, you know, the bigger your sales team, the better leverage that role has and the smaller the conversion rate you need to make that money back in spades, whatever you invested in those people that are doing sales enablement work for you. If you've got 50 sales reps, if you've got 500 sales reps, very different size organizations, yeah. you know, d- different, probably different levels of, of um, maturity in their own markets. We're talking about this like it's one role. But if you have 500 sales reps, which means you probably have about 5,000 people in your company, what does this you know, sales enablement strategic function look like? Is it still just one person? Are there multiple different people that then have different roles? Like how do, how do you... How do you communicate that to people? Well, I mean, it's going to look different in different organizations, right? I mean, everyone's got a bit of a different sales process. People have different, I mean, if you're doing field sales versus inside sales, if you're doing mostly channel versus direct sales, it's going to look a little differently. Here's how I would think about that. When we asked people where they were focused to increase performance of their sales organization and increase conversion rates, the six things we heard in this order were to increase sales direct efficiency, literally to help them work better, faster. Number two was to ensure they had access to the right content they needed at the right time. Salespeople spend an unbelievable amount of time searching for and or trying to create the content they need. Best practice sharing across the organization, having you know identifying and then making cl- very easily, uh, readily available the best practices that are working in the field, both things you know and things you uncover ongoing. Number four was sales rep training. I realize that is a the sales function and it may be something that is done still within the sales organization, but ongoing sales training does not exist for many organizations. And the last two are just ensuring sales has the right technology and the right quality contextual content. That's six things I would start from the top of that list. But if you're looking for a job description of sales enablement and where they would focus, I would say those six places are where you focus. Now, how you implement that, how you actualize that in your organization is going to be customized based on how you go to market, what your sales team looks like. But that's that's a good starting blueprint. Do you have any, um, you want to do any shout outs to, to folks that you feel like are, are doing this really well out there in the wild? Yeah, I mean, there's, it, I think a lot of companies are really still struggling with this role. I, I look at companies like MongoDB, I think does a really nice job of this. Um, I've been impressed with what I've seen from Concur, the uh, the expense management guys that are doing a really nice job of this. You know, I think there's companies in, in the MarTech space that are doing a nice job. I think, you know, earlier stage companies that are in marketing tend to tend to be maybe a little better at doing some of this. So I see companies uh, like Influitive, I see companies like uh, Lookbook that I think are doing a nice job. And by doing a nice job, I don't mean they've got the biggest or organizations or they've got the they're spending the most money on sales enablement I just think they've got the right approach they're triaging the work they can do appropriately there is a clean line there's a clean relationship a strong relationship between sales and marketing that isn't just aligned around the objectives and the definitions but is a daily engagement look I mean you know you best laid plans never survive first contact with the battlefield I think you know George Patton said that you know once and very similarly the great poet and philosopher of our time Mike Tyson is famous for saying (laughs) if you uh I think he said once, you know, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. So, you know, 
best intentions between sales and marketing start to fall apart in execution. I mean, things don't work. Things don't work the way you want them to. And so when I think about the best sales enablement programs, I tend to think of the marketing organizations that have the best relationships with sales, that are able to go to battle, get hit in the face, and then look at each other and say, okay, well, what do we fix, right? It's not who did what. It's not finger pointing. It's like, okay, that didn't work. What are we, we now going to do to make that better? So we're going to wrap this up here. I think that we could continue talking about this stuff for several more podcast episodes. Um, but before we let you go, Matt, would like to put you through a different kind of ringer. Oh, This is called the Speedy 7. Yes. All right. All right. These that. are seven non sequitur questions that All do right. not have wrong answers, but you will be highly judged by the listening audience. <laughs> right. Okay, um, good. And do not have anything to do with sales enablement. <laughs> um, All right. Or, okay. All right. Here we go. What was the first concert you ever attended? Oh, God. You have to start with this one. It was – so a caveat, it, it was, it was with, for my sister – Oh, 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 here we go. <laughs> yeah, it was for my sister. It was a family trip. We went and saw New Kids on the Block. I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I've never, I never one. saw New Kids on the Block, but um, I was gonna, I was gonna guess that. Okay. Yeah, they, they were, uh, yeah, they were entertaining. It was good. Oh hell yeah! Oh oh Yeah, they are. I think they tour with the Backstreet Boys now. Which yeah. They did. Yeah, they played Fenway. Yeah. That's the Washington Band of my era. <laughs> Well, they're from Boston. That makes a lot yeah. of sense. Yeah, they got Wahlburgers in there. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I think Marky yeah. Mark hasn't really participated in the comeback tour. No, Marky Mark is not. He no. No, he was he was Marky Mark at the Funky Bunch. It was Donnie Wall Donnie. Donnie. was yeah, in Donnie. New Kids on the Block. Oh, see, too, yeah. too before my time. We'll it cut was that out before, so yeah. I don't embarrass myself. No, no, we're definitely <laughs> keeping that in there. That's before he married Jenny McCarthy. Am I, am I catching yeah. catch, oh, up on Oh, the there answer. it is. That's right. All right. All right. What was the last TV show you binge watched? Uh, Veep. Oh, nice. With, uh, yeah, Julie Louis Drive. I, I haven't made my way all the way through it, but had a number of people say like it gets better as it goes. And so I'm about two and a half seasons in. With three young kids and travel schedule, I don't get a chance to binge watch a lot of stuff, but it's really funny. I've enjoyed going back and catching up on that one. She's brilliant. Like yeah, she, I, that it makes you pre- now that we've talked about Seinfeld twice in the show, it makes you appreciate <laughs> the cast of Seinfeld to know <sighs> that you can take one of one of the people that was just a, like a cast member, like a supporting member of the thing. And then have an entire show around them, and that's then success. I mean, it's just well, and that entire the ensemble at that show. I mean, everyone's really, really good. Just real quick, because I like threes. You know, there's a new book called Seinfeldia that kind of goes into the history of Seinfeld, how it got started, the role of the different players, uh, a lot of background stories. I found out that most of the craziest stuff in Seinfeld was actually true stories from the writer's background. Uh, Festivus was a real holiday that one of the writer's friend's dads invented years oh. before it was on the show. What? I mean, the, this is the, great. The airing of grievances, the, 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 it was all there. It was real. I think you just have to embrace your weird side and not I – because mean, that's the whole Curb Your Enthusiasm. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what Larry David's doing. It's yeah. just go around and basically put yourself in slightly awkward situations <laughs> and, then, and then kind of remove yourself from that, observe, and yeah. then be able to laugh at the absurdity of yeah. it. That's, that's what made it so funny. Oh, so good. Okay, what do you call the long sandwich that contains cold cuts, lettuce, tomato, et cetera? Uh, hero sandwich. A hero. Oh, nice. I think that's the first time. Where are, you, where are you originally from? So I grew up in California. My family's from um, the Midwest, so I'm not sure where that one came from. Okay, okay interesting. <laughs> I'm from Ohio, and we would say 
I think we would say like a sub sandwich. Sub. Oh, yeah, we would say yeah, yeah we say sub. Uh, all right. <clears throat> the where you're from, by the way, was not part of the seven. So, okay, that's fine. That's so fine. yeah, just it doesn't count. Keeping if you're keeping track <laughs> at home on the number of questions that did not count. All right. All right. Uh, do you put the cups in your cupboard upright or upside down? Oh, upright. Are you kidding me? I trust the dust in the cupboard far more than I trust when we last cleaned the base of the cupboard. And if and my mouth is going to go on whatever I put that down on. So no, they go up. Absolutely. That's the first cleanliness reasoning. I love that. That's such a good I don't think I've ever appreciated that no, point. I never even thought about the dust. So we have to stack a few, but it's just that there's a practicality behind it because right. they just don't fit otherwise. So well, and then, to- and, then, and then with our kids, uh, unfortunately, I think it's far worse because all their sippy cups and stuff, they just get thrown in a drawer. Like there's a big drawer they all just get thrown into. Absolutely. And so there's no rhyme or reason on that one. So who knows whether those are clean or not. How hard is it to close <laughs> that damn drawer? I can oh. never figure out the Tetris game that you have to play between <laughs> the little the little bulls and then the plates yeah. that have the four compartments that don't stack until you put them the right way and, and the then forks the and spoons are like they're so thick because they have to fit those forks and spoons can go on their own thing those are those are easy Listen, this is you gotta right. you gotta let the, the let experts here who are really experiencing this I mean, you gotta empty you gotta empty out that drawer every day clean it all and then gotta put it back in the morning so, so, so real quick, and it's because this this is this has become the greatest podcast of all time, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so the, there's a there's a video, there's a very short meme that actually I think the title is like you know parent training, and what it is, it's a guy on a treadmill running on a treadmill, and someone in front of the treadmill is a dumping a bucket of Legos at the front of the treadmill. So he's just like running <laughs> over <laughs> Legos. It's fantastic. Actually, this is so Hell good. No this is so great <laughs> because. So so we we redid our floors in our house and then they weren't dry when we came back from vacation. We had to sleep in our basement together as a family. And I'm walking in the dark in our basement where we've got a bu- the kids play a bunch of stuff. And I, <laughs> I'm like, shoot, what the hell did I just step on? And there's a Lego embedded in the rug <laughs> that you could not see. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure you didn't say shoot. And um, <laughs> and, and yeah, no, it's um, I mean, this is the thing. It's it's Legos. It's Polly Pockets. It's like the yeah. tiniest the tiniest set of high heels you've ever seen. What the, what the, what satanic doll does this go to? They just <laughs> left it out in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night. Yeah, this is so good. And All right, are 10 times that's it. I'm th- so there is actually I'm thinking about starting another podcast that's actually about <laughs> some of this stuff. I'm dead serious. I'm not making this up. Funny, it's and good. If if I do this, I think you have to be one of the first guests because I'm you in. have to be able to talk about it in a fun way. If you're if oh, yeah. you're if you're being a, a downer about it and being negative <laughs> about it, that's not the point. The point is how ridiculous it actually is yeah. in in a way that's actually very loving and enjoyable. So uh, it sounds like you have the right attitude there. All right. Back to the Speedy 7. Holy right. crap. This is These are very speedy, by the way. All right. Well, you know, it's um, it's it, I have the beholder. All right. All right. Bro-yo or ice cream? Ice cream. Bonus question, flavor? <sighs> Vanilla. I'm, wow. I'm kind of boring. I'm kind of boring like that. Like mm. my, my my second answer is actually gold medal ribbon from Baskin Robbins. Like from my childhood, that was my all time oh, favorite uh, flavor. But honestly, like just a really good vanilla ice cream. Yeah, I, I'm of I'm of the belief that um, there was chaos and darkness in all the world until ice cream was invented. Like probably ice cream and bourbon, I think were invented <laughs> the same day, and the sun came up for the first time. It finally sounds like okay, fine. It's it's 
good enough. We finally kind of we've kind of come over the curve. You need yeah, like a bourbon caramel sauce. Or do you do you like stuff that's like flambéed because you get that kind of liquor taste? I'm with not as big of a flambé, but there is um there there's something called like you know boozy scoop. I can't remember what it's called, but oh, it's based yes, in New York. Yes, and it's like it's uh, alcoholic ice cream. Yes, <laughs> and they they you know they make floats and they do sundays and they do all kinds of cool things with it. But uh, I mean, you combine booze and ice cream and oh and, yeah. And, that ice cream cup, that is so hipster hangover pure, <laughs> you know? That's like, you know that freaking ice cream is from Brooklyn. You just yeah, know it. It's somewhere out there. I don't know. Um, all right. Paper or plastic? Paper. It was just quick. See, these are quick. See, sometimes the speedies are just quick. Yeah. All right. Last question. So I don't know if you're a baseball fan, but... Huge. Okay. All right. So you know, you know what a walk-on song is. Yes. Okay. So, what would your walk-on song be? Well, so so there's so this is not going to be uh, short because I actually do have walk-up music. Um, so we oh, um, that's right because you because you do enough of these speeches. So someone's <laughs> like, hey, what do you want playing? Well, it's not it's not just that. So like, there's a, there's a bar close to my house that sometimes I'll stop by on the way home to get a drink or to get a little work done before I head home, and um, they have a jukebox that is connected to the Wi-Fi, and so you can you can control it from your phone. You can so, walk in. Oh, this is so. so as you are pulling up, you can log into the jukebox and play your song. So literally, you have walk up music as you enter your bar, and so the, the bartenders know if I'm about to come in because it's one of a couple songs. And so it started. So- um, I start. It started with "Space Trucking" by Deep Purple. For no other reason than it's just kind of a ridiculous song. Um, <laughs> I don't even know what that song is. Oh, uh, you gotta go look it up. Space, space. It's just ridiculous. So listen to the original one from Deep Purple, and then I, this you can't make this up. William Shatner covered it. <laughs> so there's a William Shatner kind of it. It's kind of like a beat poem, kind of a kind of a spoken sung kind of thing. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's even better. Um, so it used to be that, but then um, I, I don't know if this is. Hopefully, this isn't a kid show. But like the one I've the one I've been using more lately is uh, "Sexy Motherfucker" by Prince. That's been my walk up song uh, more lately. It's just again just ridiculous. But was this fun. post? Is this post Prince passing away that you kind of this was like an ode to Prince? No, I, actually, it started before that because I think like I I'd, I'd been using space trucking for so long. I felt like I needed something else, and I tried a bunch of other things like "Eye of the Tiger" and "Final Countdown" and just some kind of fun songs. And, and then I remembered a buddy of mine had sent me that song a long time ago just for fun. And the only problem with it is it's a long song. Like, you know, the nice thing about there's a there's a live version of Space Truck and it's over in like a minute and a half. And so it's over and you're you're in and you're done. No, I mean, it's, it's just if you haven't heard that song by Prince, I mean, it's not one of his more popular songs, but it's just it's just it's one of those like, you know, pop out your chest and feel good about yourself. And uh, it's kind of fun. Thank you again very much, Matt, for joining us and sharing these incredibly interesting insights, particularly the speedy seven you can connect with matt on twitter at heinz marketing thanks for listening and we'll see you next time thank you for listening you can follow our seismic sales enablement shift podcast to learn more about sales enablement see you next time